So like I said, uh, we are going to be continuing in our, our sermon series with Abraham, seeing what Abraham's getting up to today, which is usually pretty interesting. In, uh, in one of the songs we actually talked, or in our offering prayer I should say, we talked about that uh, giving our offering is a sign uh, that God has given all things to us and we give a sign back to him. We're going to learn about a sign today in our passage with Abraham. So at the end of September, Deschelles and I went on a small vacation to Riding Mountain National Park in Manitoba. We'd hoped to go to our favorite park, which is Waterton, but that was the weekend that Alberta got like two or three feet of snow in two days. And we saw that in the forecast and we thought, eh, maybe we're not going to try to drive through that. Uh, let's go in the opposite direction. And so well, we had a good time. Uh, we searched for some hikes that we could do in that area and uh, we decided on one called Bald Hill that looked pretty interesting. It's much as you would expect, uh, a prominent hill with no vegetation cover of any kind hence the name. It's just light-colored, loose shale or gravel kind of rising up above the trees all around it. Uh, the interesting thing is that given the lay of the land and the density of the forest, you can't actually see this hill until you're like right at the base of it, just the way the land slopes and the way the trees are. So I, I kind of looked uh, ahead on some blogs and stuff to try to figure out, you know, make sure you find the, the trail and see what others' experiences were. And they all pointed out that the signage for this hike is really bad. Uh, in, in fact, the, the spur trail that actually goes off the main trail and takes you to the hill itself isn't marked. I don't know if you can see that. It's not, it's not real clear. There we are. You can kind of see at the top there, some hiker once upon a time took it upon himself to actually take a permanent marker and point the way that you actually go straight ahead instead of to the side. I don't know why Parks Canada has not corrected this sign. And you can't really see it on here, but in the blue square, I mean, that designates like a medium difficulty hike, just like a ski trail. But somebody has scratched into the blue square, bad sign. Just to clarify their opinion on Parks Canada's ability to point the way in the right direction. Because that's the thing. That's what a sign is supposed to do. A good sign points the way in, in which you're supposed to go and allows you to follow the trail and stay on the right road. In the absence of good signage, you don't know where to go and you just kind of try to find your way. And if it wasn't for that pointing the right direction, we would have gone that way and never actually found our way to Bald Hill. And I think it's like six kilometers back to the road and that's not even where our car was parked. So that's the point of a good sign. It points the way and it keeps you on the right path. In today's passage, we read about a covenant sign. It's not exactly the same as printed words on, on a surface or on a map, but it's not totally different either. It does provide a reminder to Abraham to stay on the right path with God. And so as we typically do, I'd invite you to stand to hear from God's word today. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. 
You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. And be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's word. Have a seat. So uh, at the end there, we find out that Ishmael is, is 13 years old now. So something like 13, 14 years goes past between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. Abram, you'll remember also, he was 86 when, when Ishmael was born, so now he's 99. We've had, we've had 13 silent years where Abram, Sarai, and Hagar have lived in significant tension, I'm sure, in some sense assuming that this son Ishmael is going to be the way forward for God's promises and God's covenant. I have so many questions about this. I mean, 13 years, 
that's a long time to just kind of skip over when you turn the page from one chapter to the other. But did they ever have any doubts about this plan? Like, did they ever wonder, I don't really know, I guess. Did they ever second guess it? Did the Lord maybe try to get Abram's attention at some point in this 13-year time span? And Abram just wasn't listening, wasn't paying attention, pushed the Lord away? Where was Abram's faith? Was this a season where we could say he was far from God and perhaps he felt far from God? We just don't know all that we might wish we knew. Nevertheless, after 13 long years of nothing happening, the Lord decides to set the record straight. There's one major refrain. I don't know if you caught it, but it runs throughout this whole chapter And it occurs in a couple of clusters. The refrain is over and over again, the Lord says, I will. Right? This whole thing in this 13-year time span is Abram and Sarai and, and Hagar, they have this plan of what they are going to do. And at the end of this time, the Lord just has to come and say, nah, I will. Over and over again. It's important to notice that the Lord initiates what happens in this chapter. As he did back in chapter 12 and chapter 15, he appears to Abram and he identifies himself here as El Shaddai, or as most English translations will say, something like God Almighty. The truth is we just don't exactly know what this word Shaddai actually means. Some scholars believe it might have even already been an archaic term by the time the the Bible was written down. And so they just translated it as it was. But given the general thrust of this chapter that the Lord keeps saying, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Uh, You're going to have a child uh, by by Sarah. It seems that God Almighty, the God who is all-powerful, seems to be a pretty solid option for what this is talking about. So the Lord initiates. He says he's going to do these things. And he calls for a response. You get the sense that whatever has happened in this 13-year time span, it, it hasn't exactly been good for God and Abram's relationship. It, it seems like this is kind of as though God is he's taking Abraham back to the beginning of their relationship, like all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In the, in the very beginning, where we start the Abraham story, the Lord appears to Abram and says... You know, go, go out from this land, go leave it behind. In Hebrew, it's just literally walk, go. And in this chapter, he takes him right back to that. And he says, walk, walk with me. Walk before me, Abraham. And it, it kind of has the sense of, you know, maybe, maybe a couple who's been struggling in their marriage and, and they have to kind of go back to the very beginning of when they met and when they fell in love and started their relationship and remember like, why this happened and what they love about the other person. Or maybe, you know, somebody who's disillusioned in their career, say a surgeon or something, and, and that person has to go back to why they got into medicine at all in the very beginning because they had this burning desire to help people. The Lord is kind of taking Abraham back to the very beginning and saying, let's, let's kind of start this over. Let's go back to where we were when you were walking and you were trusting me and we'll see if we can get this thing off the ground again. Again, God's original call was, walk with me. Leave your old country, follow me into something better. That was 25 years before this time. 
The Lord's call, though, is still the same. Walk with me, Abram. Walk with me. That's not an easy call, especially what comes right after that. Walk before me and be blameless. Like many things, that's a pretty high and tough call. But the Lord is quick to point out who will supply the power and the ability to actually carry this through. We saw this profoundly back in Genesis 15 with the covenant the Lord and and Abraham made and and the, the butchered pieces and it was only the Lord that walked between the pieces, right? Meaning that the Lord was taking all the responsibility to carry out the covenant. We see it again today. The Lord will establish his covenant. And in the Hebrew, it's literally just the Lord will give his covenant, right? The, the covenant is a thing that the Lord gives. It's not a thing to achieve. It's not a thing that Abram has to do much of. Specifically, what this looks like is that the Lord will multiply Abram into a great multitude. I will give. I will multiply. And at this, Abram falls on his face before the Lord. I mean, the usual explanation is, uh, you know, he's prostrating himself out of respect before the Lord. I think it's worth noting, though, that the previous times when the Lord has appeared to Abram, um, he hasn't done this. He's just kind of talked with the Lord. It seems to me that maybe there's, there's an appropriate humility and even repentance going on in this passage. Abram recognizes that things haven't exactly been good with him and God these last 13 years. And when he recognizes that God is still committed to doing what he promised to do, the Lord is still staying faithful, Abram has an appropriate response of, of humility and repentance. I mean, even if the Lord isn't overtly calling Abram to account, he's still recognizing his own unfaithfulness in walking with God and and having to reckon with it now after 13 years. But the Lord's response is not to punish Abram. His opening lines, walk before me and be blameless, that's a second chance, not a condemnation. And again, just so Abram doesn't miss it, the Lord spells out all the things he will do that amount to him giving his covenant. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant eternally with you and your descendants. I will give the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession to them. I will be their God. Over and over again, I will do this for you, Abram. I will do this. And the culmination of all these promises is a new name for Abram. Not a huge change, but one that reflects the promises God has made to him and is reaffirming to him. Abram means exalted father, whereas Abraham means father of a multitude. Now, the etymology isn't 100% clear, but that's the meaning that is supplied in the passage. This is the first instance in scripture of the Lord giving someone a new name. It happens quite a number of other places after this, but this is the first time. And it begins a pattern of someone receiving a new name to mark a significant encounter with God, and usually when God brings about some kind of a change in direction or a fresh start for that person. And then 
we get another kind of weird story that doesn't exactly fit our sanitized modern world. The last time God made a covenant, it was cut up some animals. This time it's cut off a piece of your body? Here's the thing. Circumcision wasn't exactly a new idea. It seems that it was a relatively quite common practice, actually, in the ancient Near East. Notably, uh, the Egyptians uh, commonly practiced it. And that makes a certain amount of sense. The Egyptians uh, were kind of preoccupied with, with hygiene and, and cleanliness. Uh, they, you know, they practiced body hair removal and so forth. Uh, so it, it fits in well with the Egyptian culture. There's evidence that many other nearby neighboring cultures practice this. What does seem interesting, though is that the practice that Abraham and his descendants are going to follow changes when in a boy's life this would happen. In most other cultures, this was a rite of passage that would, that would take place when a boy was, you know, 13 or, or puberty, coming of age, right? Or it would even be maybe some kind of a fertility rite in preparation for marriage. So, so the covenant with Abraham changes this common cultural practice into something quite a bit more meaningful. It it changed it from being a coming-of-age thing or even a sexual thing to being an identity thing. We even see this in this story. Although Abraham is old, he receives his new covenant name when he goes through this this ritual. And it's, it's been the normative pattern ever since Uh, For Jewish little boys, little babies, uh, when they're eight days old, they receive the covenant sign of circumcision, and that is when they have their name. There's a ceremony they do, uh, the circumcision and the naming, and people gather around, and that's when they're marked as members of God's covenant people. They receive the sign of the covenant, and tied to that is they receive their identity in the people of God. So it's called a sign. What, how does this work? In what way is it a sign? What even, what is a sign? Why is it called this? Well, a sign is something that represents or points to or reminds us of some fuller or greater reality. We saw the thing there uh, with the, the hiking sign that was quite badly done that needed to be corrected in order to point the way. And at quite a literal level, yeah, we can think of a sign that's painted on a flat surface that tells you some kind of information. Often it's displayed in a public place to help you find your way. If you go down that ramp and around the corner, you will see a little square green sign that has a mermaid or a a siren, I guess technically, painted on there. And you know that 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 sign, that means you buy coffee here right? That's what that tells you. It's the Starbucks logo, okay? But the the, the sign, it it can stand in for the whole experience, can't it? When you see that sign, maybe you can imagine the sounds of beans grinding, or the sound of milk frothing, or just the smell of coffee, the, the warmth as you pick the paper cup up in your hands. We know that the sign isn't the actual thing, but when you see it, especially if you're tired or you're cold, it can call to mind and to memory that whole experience of buying a cup of coffee. We also know the difficulty of insufficient signage. 
This might be less frequent now that we all seem to have GPS on our phones, can tell us which street to go down, and if you miss a turn, it can help you correct that. But I think most of us will know the feeling of driving in an unfamiliar area and wondering, am, am I on the right road? Or like, what's the speed limit here? Is it 40? Is it 50? Is it 60? I don't want to get a ticket. What's going on? Is this the exit I need to find? If not that, maybe you do know the feeling of panic, finding yourselves in a mall or an airport and you're desperately looking around frantically to see the sign that tells you where the washroom is and you're not seeing one and this is getting from just panic to all-out emergency. I'm sure some of us have had that experience as well, right? You're looking for a sign that will tell you the information and the way you need to go and you don't see it and you feel lost. Good signage helps us find our way, stay on the right road. And that's the point. Of course, circumcision, making a a physical cut in your body, is kind of unusual. But there's a certain logic in it. The sign is a literal mark on a man's body that reminds him of who he is. Especially when we consider the fact that this passage connects it so closely with being given a name and an identity within God's covenant people. But Abram is not the only one who receives a new name. He's called Abraham now. But the Lord says, Sarai is going to get a new name too. Sort of. Her name is changed to Sarah. Now, oddly enough, it's actually basically the same name as far as anybody can tell. It seems to just be kind of a dialectical variation. Like... uh, In modern languages, Mary in English or Maria in a lot of other European languages. Same name, just a slightly different way of pronouncing it. And it seems that that's actually what Sarah, Sarai, Sarah's new name amounts to. So what's the significance of that? Like, why a new name that actually isn't a new name? Here's the thing. I don't think it's as much a new name as restating and and restarting her identity. She had always been the one through whom the promise was supposed to come. Abraham might have given up on that happening. Sarah herself might have given up on that ever happening. But the Lord didn't give up on it happening. And because the Lord didn't give up, that means that it will still happen. Her her new name that isn't actually a new name signifies that. She is still the one through whom God's plan will come. Here the Lord makes very clear what Abraham probably should have understood all along. That he would overcome their childlessness and make them the founders of a great nation. Right? A lot of the same promises the Lord says to Abraham, I will do this, I will make you the father of the nations and your descendants and kings. And then when he restates it regarding Sarah, some of the same promises. Kings are going to come from her. She's going to be the mother of this great nation. And again, we're back to those I will statements from the Lord. Not you will, but I will, the Lord says. I will bless her. I will give you a child by her. I will make her the mother of nations and kings. The Lord promises that he is still going to do the impossible. And Abraham's response, well, he's, he's not convinced 
of all this. He, he, he falls on his face a second time, but this time it doesn't seem to be in reverence so much as he, he has a laughing attack. I can't help but think of, anybody see, know the original Mary Poppins? Uh, elderly Mr. Dawes, played by Dick Van Dyke, when he finally gets the wooden leg named Smith joke, and he starts laughing like, <laughs> like that, and he starts floating up to the ceiling. I can imagine Abraham doing that same kind of old man, wheezy laugh and falling over. He's laughing so hard. It's just, it's just hilarious. It's clear by now, and it will be explicit in the next chapter, that Sarah is past the age of being able to have children, even if she ever could have. Abraham fathered a child 13 years ago, but he seems to be doubting that he's going to be able to be a father again. And so he's got his doubts. And like many of us, along with his doubts, he has a certain fondness for the alternative plan that he's kind of come up with and has now been transpiring these last 13 years. So not only doubts, but also, well, but I have this other plan, Lord. What what do you think of it? It's kind of like, you know, are you sure, Lord, that you can't, couldn't you just fulfill it through Ishmael? Like, I've already got a son here. Sure would be nice and convenient if he could inherit your blessing. But the Lord responds, and the Lord assures him, I will bless him, Abraham. He is your son, and I will bless him. But the covenant is through the son that you're going to have with Sarah. And since you thought this this whole promise to be rather funny, you can name him Laughter. That's what the name Isaac means. So every time you call your boy in for supper, you're going to be reminding yourself of this moment. And then... The Lord in his grace, he does something that up until now in this whole story, he has not really done for Abraham. Up until now, it seems that whenever God promises Abraham something, in the course of time, the scope of that promise just keeps getting stretched out and out and out and farther away and farther away. And you remember the thing about, well, your descendants will inherit this land, but they're going to be slaves in another country for like 400 years, and then they'll inherit this land. And it just seems that the promises get so far away. You can feel Abram starting to feel a little bit of despair. But here the Lord does something new that he hasn't done before. He says, Abraham, this promise is going to come true within the year. Sarah will bear you a son before a year goes by. And Abraham obeys. He obeys God. He enacts the covenant sign, which is to say he's at least willing to trust God one more time to fulfill his promise. At any rate, it's only another year before he'll know one way or the other. And so it says, Abraham went and got this over with that very day. I think there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, yeah, you could say, oh, he just wanted to get it over with. That's probably true. But, you know, he didn't say to God, you know what? Uh, Now's not really a good time. Like, me and the hired men, we've got some wells to dig and some corrals to build. Can we put this off? Or, you know, Ishmael's got a, I don't know what kind of sports they played back then, but he's, he's got a tournament coming up. Can we, can we wait till after that to do this covenant sign thing? It just, no, we're going to get this done today. Now, without trying to be too crass, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how this went down. Though, you know, It says he did it that very day, both him and Ishmael and all his hired men. You can kind of imagine everybody finishing up work for the day and being like, hey, here, the boss is coming down here. And Abraham being like, all right, boys, uh, so here's the thing. 
right? I'm sure it was very, very awkward and unpleasant. And maybe we do. We chuckle a little bit at that. It, it, it seems strange. There's a certain kind of awkwardness about it. There's no point trying to hide that. It seems a, a really weird thing to make a sign of God's covenant. Then again, so do a lot of things, right? That, that one's kind of strange because we have a certain level of, of kind of natural discomfort with the whole topic. But, I mean, really, it is pretty strange to, to fill a horse trough with water and dunk people in it and pull them back out as, as a sign of God's covenant. It's kind of weird to take a little, a little bite of bread and a little cup of, of wine or grape juice and, and eat those as, as a sign of God's covenant with us. Right? A lot of the things we do are actually kind of strange when you really think about it. So I want to close by looking one last time at, at the concept of the covenant and the sign. It's kind of similar to what happened in chapter 15, actually. There, if you remember, we talked about how the Lord saying, cut up some animals, Abraham. Abraham would have known what this was about. He and God were going to make a deal. And typically when you did that, uh, Abraham would say, here's what I'm going to do, Lord. And the Lord would have said, here's what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. He cuts up the pieces. He's going to make his covenant. And all that happens is the Lord says, here's what I'm going to do for you. The Lord walks through the pieces. There's really not that much spelled out that Abraham has to do. It's kind of a similar thing today here. The Lord opens with, here's the covenant. You've got to do the covenant, Abraham. You've got to keep your covenant. But then it subtly switches not to, you've got to do the covenant, but just do the sign of the covenant. And there's a lot more, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, says the Lord, than there are demands laid upon Abraham. He, he mostly, the Lord does, I mean, he mostly just promises to do things for Abraham. Abraham's told he has a covenant to keep. Mostly he just has to keep the sign of the covenant. The heart of the covenant. The actual doing of the covenant. The actual foundation of the covenant. The actual, you know, establishing of the covenant. That's not Abraham's to do. That's the Lord's. It's still solely and fully on the Lord to establish the covenant and fulfill it. You see how that works? Keeping the sign of the covenant, it's not an optional thing. It's not optional at all. In fact, the Lord says, if you don't do the sign of the covenant, you're going to get cut off from your people. It's a serious business. You've got to keep the sign of the covenant. And yet, Abraham is not called on to establish the covenant. The source of the covenant is clearly from the Lord. It says right in the text, this is the covenant that I'm going to give. The Lord gives the covenant. Its source is in him. He gives it. Abraham is just called upon to keep the sign. That is to do the thing that will remind him of his covenant identity and keep him on the right road with God. Because for 13 years he's been wandering from the right road. The covenant sign is there to keep him on the right road from now on. That's how signs work in the context of our faith. They communicate information, but they do it by embodying that information in some physical and tangible form. Like I said, dunking people underwater and pulling them out as, as a sign and a reenactment of dying with Christ and being buried to new life, or raised, buried with Christ, raised to new life. 
They do it by embodying the information, by doing something to make it concrete, tangible, touchable, feelable. Here's the thing, though. It can be really easy to slip into thinking that doing the sign establishes the covenant. If you read the rest of Scripture, it seems that Abraham's descendants made that mistake with their covenant sign of circumcision, right? You get into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was coming up against this all the time. And we'd probably never say that, oh yeah, doing the sign, doing the covenant signs establishes the covenant. We wouldn't say that, but we can easily slip into thinking that our doing things properly and, and obeying fully is the basis and foundation of our covenant with God. Or we, we certainly act like it from time to time, don't we? You know, if I do these things, then, then, then well, God will, he'll like me more. He'll, he'll hear my prayers more. He'll, he'll bless me more. He'll accept me more. He'll grow our church more if we do all these things in the right way. But that's not how it works. The purpose of any of the things that God calls us to do, any of the covenant signs he gives us, any of the practices he gives us, they're not to impress him. They're not to twist his arm or to earn status with him. The things God calls us to do are there to remind us of the way that we should walk, give us a way to remind one another of the way we should walk, and keep us walking in that way, on the right road with the Lord. So, I mean, we can talk about, we have a little bit, things that we'd call sacraments or ordinances, depending on your tradition. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are both signs we participate in that point us to a greater reality, Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the actual foundation of the covenant the Lord has with us. We might, we might talk about what we would call, you know, spiritual rhythms, and that we gather for weekly worship on the Lord's day. We mark yearly transitions, you know, Advent, Christmas, Lent, and Easter, Pentecost, These are ways to physically and tangibly express to ourselves, we remind ourselves, but, you know, we often do these practices as a family, at home or as a church family, together. They remind us of the foundation of our faith, the life of Jesus, the events of our salvation. This is the point of all the practices that either the Lord instructed us to do or that Christians down through the ages have found beneficial. They are not the foundation of the covenant. That lies in what the Lord in his grace has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. They're not ways that we can impress God or earn status before him or compel him to do things for us. They're not ways that we can appear righteous before others, but they are God-ordained and time-tested ways that believers remind themselves of what God has done for us and they're things that keep us walking in the way that we should go. Will you pray with me? Lord, we look at the passage for today and it's yet another kind of strange story in the life of Abraham. But when we look at your grace and your goodness to him, Uh, your willingness to keep your promises, your faithfulness to your covenant, uh, even when your servant Abraham uh, got off track for a a lengthy season of his life. Uh, 
we're encouraged that you will continue to be faithful to us as we seek to walk with you. And we see that you gave Abraham a sign, a, a, a tangible, physical reminder of his identity as, as a child of faith, as a recipient of your covenant promises, and as, as a reminder of the way that he should walk and to keep walking in it. And as we look to those things that you have given us to do, we pray that we would see them similarly, not as the things that establish the covenant, but as things that can remind us of the covenant that you have already established. And as we keep these signs, as we keep the practices that you've set forth for us to do, may we in turn find that that they keep us. They keep us on the right road. They keep us walking faithfully with you day by day. That's our heart's cry, Lord. And we pray for your presence to go with us as we do that. In Jesus' name.